0: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrowcom
1: slash ACAST. 1992 in Italy is the year of insanity. We were descending into some sort of darkness. It was impossible to sustain. The level of corruption, the level of organized crime grip on the territory, the level of terror was enough for people to react. Like every mafia boss. When you're home, you're someone. Outside of home, you're no one. And that's, I think, something that Messina Denaro confirms.
0: I'm Nicola Tallant, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He was the notorious Cosa Nostra boss who lived in hiding for 30 years and who was responsible for terrorist atrocities against Italy. Matteo Messino Denaro was amongst a group of violent mafia bosses who hit back at Sicilian magistrates, their families and bodyguards with lethal bomb attacks during the early 1990s. When the brave judges took on the notorious criminal organisation, for decades he was hunted to no avail. But this month he was dramatically arrested in Palermo as he made his way to a cancer clinic there. So, who is Dinaro? And what is the significance of his arrest for the people of Sicily and southern Italy? Today I'm talking with Dr. Anna Sergi, a professor of criminology and organized crime at the University of Essex, and author of a number of books about the mafia, including her latest, Chasing the Mafia. She tells me about Denaro's background, his violent life, his incredible capture, and about the secrets he may take to his grave. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Anna, your kind of initial reaction to the news of the arrest of Matteo Messino Denaro, um unexpected I'm sure, but somebody like yourself who understands the mechanisms of the mafia and the idea that the takedown of one godfather probably isn't going to exactly rocked the boat completely but just maybe just tell me what you felt first when you heard the story.
1: Yes so I felt um, I didn't believe it I thought it was an ox and that's because it happened already three times that I I can recall that the news have launched this breaking news Matteo Messina denaro has been caught in the past it turns out one time it was a Someone that had nothing to do with him in a restaurant in the Netherlands. Another time was someone else in Liverpool uh, during, a, I think, a Formula One. Um, so it, it's. I thought it was an ox. I actually thought it's like, okay, come on, yet again. And the reason why I thought that is because the day before, the fifteenth of January. Uh, we celebrated, if we can say that, in Italy, 30 years since the arrest of Totorina, who was the boss of the bosses of Cosa Nostra. So there was a lot of talk about Matteo Messina Denaro the day before, and it looks so coincidental. It's like, oh, come, come on, we've been talking about this guy until last night, and now they caught him. So that's why. But then obviously, um, the more the news got confirmed, the more it seemed you know, okay, that's the real deal. It's funny you should say that because I think people
0: involved in organized crime and those who know a little bit about it, maybe who write about it or work around it, don't believe coincidences exist.
1: (laughs) Yes, we tend to be quite uh, conspiratorial in that sense, in a good sense, I guess. But uh, I can tell you we are not enough. We are not alone in Italy. At this stage, the debate is going completely on the conspiracy side, uh, for good reasons, obviously, including the, coinc- the coincidence of uh, the date, um, but also a number of other things that in this uh, arrest didn't quite fit. Uh, in And we know, as you said at the beginning, how this arrest works. Um, it's not the first time that a mafia boss of this caliber is arrested in Sicily. We have at least other two examples of it uh, in the near past. So, um, yeah, there are some things that we're still wondering about on how this all happened.
0: And, of course, if we take ourselves across the world briefly before we come back to Sicily, in Mexico recently, the arrest of El Chapo's son, the drama of it, and you you look at the political, you know, what's happening around that politically, and, of course, it's it's to do, they say, with Biden. Um, And... Yes, there's certainly, you know, when it comes to these big operations to bring down or to bring in these major organised criminals, it ultimately is political because there has to be um, at the very least a nod for the finances it takes, you know. There isn't luck with this kind of thing, but let's start with the background of Denaro. His father was the capo of. I will let you actually explain it and pronounce the words. Yes. <laughs> so go ahead.
1: It's, it's a bit yes, it, it can be a bit complicated. So Matteo Messina Denaro uh, is the son of Francesco Matteo Messina Denaro. Uh, who was the boss of the province of Trapani. Trapani is a beautiful place part of Sicily in the western part of the the, the island just below Palermo. And Francesco Messina Denaro made a good choice in life which was to side uh, on the side of the winner, to side with the winner. The winner at that time was Totoriina. Salvatore Rina was the quintessential image of the of Cosa Nostra in Sicily was a very how can i put it nicely <laughs> a very strange man he believed uh, he wanted to get uh, to the top of uh, Cosa Nostra he had very clear ideas of what Cosa Nostra looked like and uh, he essentially killed everyone around him who didn't approve of his uh, choice so he started off a mafia war uh, between his clan, the Corleonesi, from the town of Corleone in the province of Palermo, and the Palermo-based um, clans, which are notoriously the more uh, important. He won the war, and the people who supported him, including Francesco Messina de Naro, won with him. Uh, so essentially this created a new season of Cosa Nostra, Bosses who were extremely militarized, in the sense that they use uh, weapons quite um, breezily, uh, and they essentially created this sort of, you know, unique form of power under Totorina' um, protection and guidance. And Matteo Messina Denaro became the protege of Totorina. He was young compared to the rest. He was barely thirty. At the time, he had already been um, participating to the Upper end of activities of Cosa Nostra because of his father, and when his father died, he became um, the boss of the province uh, and obviously of his town, Castelvetrano, where he was caught eventually. So Matteo Messina Denaro was supposed to be the future of Cosa Nostra for Totorina. Obviously, Totorina couldn't possibly fathom the idea that his uh, strategy would not work and that everyone was going to be arrested, even if it took thirty years. Mm and just you know
0: going back before this war and before Donaro becomes the the boss of bosses going right back because the mafia was born in Sicily and it was born way back before sort of what normal people would think organized crime emerged out of the, you know, the drugs and, and all the rest of it. It goes way back to, the, I think, the 18th century when Sicily was ruled by different countries and where Sicilians basically rose up against what they saw as oppressors and started forming gangs and groupings themselves and policing their own environment and where Omerta was uh, Umerta, f- yes. <laughs> first born. And I think then. That when Sicily became part of Italy, um, those sort of warlords and those gangs remained and they had become very entrenched at that point
1: yeah so the start of the mafia is very mythological in this sense because obviously we it's a it's a social process we don't have a birthday. However, we know that the, a couple of things converged in the same time first of all, uh, as you said, the unification of Italy which didn't bring uh, much unification to Sicily um, on the one end on the other hand, the end of feudalism, so the breaking down of um property rights of those families who had uh, notoriously and historically held a lot of um, land uh, and this land was, the the rules around land ownership changed and obviously this created a sense of impoverishment and entitlement in some uh, of the, let's say, bourgeoisie class. Um, In academia, uh, the most obvious way of defining mafias is an industry of private protection whereby you turn to the people who are close to you for mind and for um, geography, to give you the protection that you can't find elsewhere. So it's not a substitution of the state, it's together with the state. The state cannot reach every single angle. so mafias are, were not obviously always criminals. Uh, I think that's uh, that's a misconception that many people have. Uh, there is nothing criminal in offering protection in that sense uh, of human security. What became criminal was obviously asking for something in return and this something in return becoming something illicit and then obviously um, becoming, in a way, Diversifying the portfolios of activities and unifying, making let's say the protection money on the one hand uh, invested in other uh, forms of crime on the other end, including eventually in the um, uh, in the mid of the 20th century drugs. So it, things happen for be, in a mix between people's charisma on the one end. Some of the bosses of Cosa Nostra are very well known for that. Uh, Some of the early chances of globalization, let's not forget America here, and the chances to establish a Pan-American Sicilian um, partnership, however that went, uh, and clearly the lack of mm, uniformity in the way Sicily evolved uh, together with the rest of uh, Italy. But I wouldn't say just Sicily, it's something from the south. We have uh, still open We call it questione meridionale, the southerner question, uh, which is what happened in the south of Italy that we are not, the same as as the other Italian. And it's a long, long question which we don't want to get into, but you know, it's in a nutshell.
0: And northern Italy tends to be very industrialized and where all the big businesses, is, is that right? And then the South is kind of farmers and
1: there are know. businesses in Calabria, in Sicily, in the Puglia, the situation is not obviously the same as it used to be. Uh, however, there is a lot of resistance in abandoning certain logics uh, of um, clientelism and patronage I say the, which are eventually part not just the, not the only reason why but part of the reason why mafias are still uh, born in the south
0: yeah yeah I've been to Sicily a good few times and um, haven't yet made it to Palermo but I intend to go but I've been to Catania Palermo
1: is the most beautiful city I'm honest I'm going in a month and I can't wait lovely I absolutely adore no, it's it it's
0: beautiful but you know what I what I find sometimes is that you go I mean this is just purely from a tourism point of view you go and you book a hotel you're paying a lot of money and you don't seem to be getting much bang for your book and I was always told that um, it's because of protection because of the extent of the tentacles of the mafia that a lot of business are paying money people don't really want to be businesses don't really want to be seen to be you know wealthy because they're going to come after them i mean it always sounded a little bit similar to sort of um Certainly the drug dealers here with the IRA, who they always went after, anybody who was showing money. Maybe that's incorrect, but it was just said a number of times.
1: Well, um, it could be, it could be correct in some instances, in some other instances, it could just be, you know, it's, it's very difficult to differentiate um mafia behaviors or mafia fueled behaviors from mafia from expectations or mafia behavior people might do things not because the mafia is asking them to but because they fear they will be asked to so it's quite controversial i guess to to separate sicilians or calabrians from and their behaviors from mafia behaviors it's very difficult
0: anyway one way or another it's a beautiful part of the world and tourism is clearly one of the the big industries and I'm sure loads of people in Ireland have been or intend to go. Um, we'll go back to cuz we've kind of slightly gone off uh, track yeah. <laughs> there but and that's my fault. But Denaro, what happens in the early 1990s 92 93 that the Sicilian government decide to go after to try and break the mafias and in doing so um, they have to make them turn against one another. These are criminal groupings with quite tight blood bonds and familial bonds and um, they bring them in in their droves. I mean, hundreds of them are brought before the courts.
1: Yes. So, um, first of all, it wasn't the Sicilian government. (laughs) Sorry to disappoint. Uh, It was the Sicilian magistrates and then eventually the Italian government. So the um, breaking point of Cosa Nostra is the Maxi trial. The Maxi trial that, um, started in nine, well, ended in 1989 and then eventually became a definite sentence in 1992, January 1992, um, was eventually, um, the, coming out of the mind of one man who is Giovanni Falcone. Giovanni Falcone is Italy's most well-known hero. He died at the end of Cosa Nostra, blown up uh, in the so-called Strage di Capaci in uh, May 1992. And together with his colleagues, uh, including Paolo Borsellino and under uh, Rocco Chinnici, who was at the time in the 80s uh, heading the Inquisitorial Office of Palermo, uh, he basically started to ideate and understand how the hell do we go against a group that is so tight, as you said, that is so embedded in the region uh, and not just in the region. At the time, we were already evolving. Uh, Cosa Nostra was already evolved into Italy, into the world. And he, he created the so-called Falcone method, which is still today used throughout the world. It's the basis of the United Nations uh, of. Uh, transnational organized crime convention, which is to go after the money. Now, we keep saying this, going after the money, but it wasn't like that until the 80s. Um, so he created a way, an actual way, to go after the money, which I won't bore you with the technical details, um, and which involved uh, America, which involved the rest of Europe. And he brought behind, well, in front of the courts, over 400 people. And uh, a lot the majority of these 400 people were convicted. At the time, the Mafia offence was new. We had a Mafia membership offence in Italy since 1992. It um, used it for the first time in the Maxi trial. It sticks. And uh, this was a massive blow. Because we are not just talking here about soldiers, we were talking about heads of the mafia. Um, Dottor Ina at the time, again, the boss of um, Cosa Nostra, was a very ruthless man. And he was confident that, like he did in the past, he could overthrow, he could overturn the trial. He he promised his people that he could corrupt enough people, corrupt enough judges, and this trial is not going to stand not at at the end of it, not in the Supreme Court. And he was wrong. So the moment in which he was clear that the trial uh, sentences were going to stick, including his own, um, he... eventually lost it (laughs) and he lost it by doing what he did best which is to start killing people so he started a sort of a don't even a war eventually has been described against the state and he started not just killing um, people among you know close to him or spreading blood in the streets of Palermo as he had done in the past but he targeted the so-called excellent uh, people, we call them excellent cadavers as well, excellent corpses, uh, which eventually was, had to start with, um, Giovanni Falcone in the 90s, but had already started with other people killed who were trying to fight mafias in the 80s, like, uh, you know, um, Carlo Alberto Dalla Chiesa, Rocco Chinnici himself, the boss of Giovanni Falcone. But obviously, after the trial, the maxi trial ended, to attack Falcone had become the quintessential mission of Totorino, and he succeeded. He did that with a number of other people, including the Graviano brothers, including Leo Luca Bagarella, who was his um, uh, brother in law, and Matteo Messina Denaro. So he did that with just a, f- an, a handful of people who were at the time the boss of various parts of Cosa Nostra, various sections of Cosa Nostra, uh, who were with him convinced that if you want to have anything from the state, you have to attack. And that's what he did. And Anna, just to, you know, I
0: suppose... Focus on that for a minute, because Falcone was blown up along with, I think, his wife and five of his bodyguards, police yes. who were bo- who were minding him. The bodyguards. I mean, you, you'd like to think if you had five bodyguards, you you should be able to move around at least. But he blew up a bridge, and uh, as he was traveling over it, is that that right? And then uh, a piece of a piece of the motorway was blown a piece off. of the motorway was blown up, and and he was killed in it. But you know, the loss of life, the loss of those heroes, you know, of Italy's future, really, and your future generations who want to live outside of that stranglehold of organized crime. What they also did was create a fear. And in, in doing that, so, you know, if you're a magistrate, if you're trying to do right, you know, not everybody is going to be brave enough, really, to work in a life or death situation. And, That fear that they create destroys the structures of society even more.
1: Yes, at the time uh, Cosa Nostra became a terror organization, essentially, which was very unusual for. And for other mafias, it was never normally like that. Organised crime and terrorism are not that similar in Italy. Um, so it became, it had two effects. One, uh, it prompted finally, <laughs> finally, the state, the national state to start reacting. And it created an outpour of support from civil society. People marched and they called out names and they organised into what became the first NGO uh, Libera uh, against mafias in Italy, which is still today the biggest one. Um, so the reaction was fierce, and yes, it was. It became very obvious that we always say this in Italian um, that they shouldn't have, they shouldn't have been left alone. These judges, and yet they were, and the reason why they were has to do with politics, with their positions, with you know the little nitty gritty things of. Small people in small places, Um, but it became very obvious uh, that in situations like this, with mafias that become or can grow like this, you can't leave these people alone. You can't; the state is not enough. People need to be along the state, but more importantly, the state has. You can't have only one person fight; is not sustainable for anyone.
0: Yeah, and you know, I suppose it's a lesson as well uh, to other countries across Europe and here as well, to try and stem the growth of organised crime. Everybody says we're never going to win the war against drugs, we're never going to win the war against organised crime. Absolutely not. But you cannot let it take that grip of a country and, you know, the corruption that comes with it. So each mafia or, you know, criminal organisation that is taken down while another one will grow, you just have to keep at it. It's like weeding a garden.
1: If I can add to that, um, 1992 in Italy is the year of insanity. I I mean, now we are only talking about, only, we are talking about uh, major bombings and major uh, murders, but the year, the 1992 starts in January with the confirmation of the Maxi trial. In February, the biggest scandal of corruption of the world erupts in Italy, the one that is commonly called Tangentopoli, Bribesville, Mm -hmm. where pretty much um, all of Italian states were found to be using systemic corruption um, to proceed with their daily life. It was the biggest political corruption scandal again of the world until today and this uh, very much involved Rome, it involved Sicily, it involved mafias, it involved anyone uh, who had any say in the underworld in Italy. Then in May Giovanni Falcone is killed, in July Paolo Borsellino is killed. We have a period, which I only remember as a child, uh, so I can't possibly comment with my own individual memories, but we had a period where um, that year really pushed to change. It couldn't have been anywhere else. We were descending into some sort of darkness. It was impossible to sustain. So the amount, the level of corruption, the level of organised crime grip on the territory, the level of terror was enough, I think. To, for people to react.
0: And when you talk about you were descending into that level of darkness, do you think had it not, you know, had the state not stood up to it at that point, um, it would have been a similar situation to what's ha- what we see in the likes of Mexico, where the corruption is just so embedded, it's in every part of existence.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, absolutely. I mean, I think in a way this was a... It's, it's awful to say, but this was our lucky charm. Uh, and it's awful to say because obviously people died in between. But uh, the, mist- the highest peak of Cosa Nostra was also his demise. The highest peak of Totoriina, is his most, uh, how can I put it, his, his most terrible moment, his moment of realisation, the murders of the judges, was eventually was brought him down. And uh, history teaches us... Um, that clearly it's not enough to bring down a man. But in that case, the symbol, the symbolic meaning of bringing down that man for Italy was the beginning of a much more successful period of obviously not eradicating organized crime, very, very far from it, not eradicating corruption either, but clearly at least creating sides. And that was, I think, missing, at least in a certain part of um The South. And
0: no doubt what has happened since is a whole other, uh, you know, something that we couldn't even cope with on a podcast. It's books, it's, you know, academic studies, etc. So for our part today, let's stick with Denaro. You said he was one of those that was involved in those dreadful murders of Falcone and, and others. He was wanted, and he was jailed in his absence by a court for his was it for his role in the murder of Falcone? Yes,
1: he has he has been sentenced for several murders, um, but obviously also for co participating. Um, together with the others, in the setting up of the murder of Falcone Borsellino and the bodyguards and the wife of Falcone, so um, Matteo Messina Denaro, as I said, was the youngest at the time, um, and this is not. I keep repeating this because I think it's important. Is not he was seen as the one who was supposed to continue uh, Rina's work. Rina himself in jail. Expressed resentment against Mettomessina Denaro because he had agreed to do what all the others had agreed to do, which is to disappear. He was very disappointed in him. And uh, because he was supposed to be the bridging boss, the boss who bridged the new generation of people brought up by Rina and the old generation, like his father, man of honour of the previous era. So Messina Denaro. Naro, to, once um, Rina get arrested in January 1993, um, we have a period in which the bombings do not stop. We have three more incidents at the very least in, in uh, Rome, Milan and Florence, people dying again for bombs placed by Cosa Nostra. This has all been uh, resulting in trials and sentences uh, and eventually brings... Down some of the members of the remaining circle of the arena, apart from Messina Denaro, he disappears in the summer autumn of 1993 to only reappear a few days ago. So Messina Denaro eventually marries this idea of submersion. He understands they cannot go on like that, and he disappears smartly. I would say more than others uh, in that sense, um, but in so doing, he perpetuates the myth of Cosa Nostra being invincible, of Cosa Nostra being, you know, uh, in continuation from its past. So the meaning of this this arrest is not because it's the last one standing. Yes, okay, that's great that the state finally gets to jail him. But it's really the fact that with him in jail, a period of Italy gets closed after 30 years, but it does get closed. Or at the very least, another chapter opens. But that one... For now, is closed, and I think that's the symbolic. Uh, that's the meaning of his being on the run for thirty years. Apart from the fact that obviously he was a wanted man, and he had to serve time in jail. Now, like any
0: person that goes missing, uh, or sorry, unlike any person that goes missing, um, you know, I suppose a normal individual operating in the ordinary world that goes missing we check their credit cards to see if they used it if they've shown up anywhere there may be sightings of them whatever presumably denaro given that he's wanted to serve life in prison isn't going to use his own name or he's just literally going to go to ground so over the last 30 years did you know he was alive or was there suspicions that you know he had been disappeared essentially, which is a, an IRA term but yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think there was ever there was never anyone who, have, who actually believed that he had disappeared uh, in the sense of dying. Um, there were many uh, speculations on whether or not he had plastic surgery, whether or not his face looked the same, whether or not his voice looked the, sounds sounded the same let's not forget the police never had the DNA. Uh, sorry, he never had the fingerprints of Messina Denaro because he was never jailed. Uh, they only had a piece of his D- DNA. Uh, so eventually, some sort of confrontation was going to be possible. But no, most of the speculation were uh, either attempts to mes- mess with the investigation, so a sighting of him in Brazil, another sighting of him in Germany, another sighting of him God knows where. Uh, or uh, rumors, rumors that he was sick. I've heard this rumor that he was sick, I think before the pandemic, someone had said or someone was intercepted saying that they have heard that, you know, people heard that he was sick and da, da, da. So this idea that he was sick eventually made us kind of assume that if anything, at some point he would turn up dead. But then they caught him. So, and they caught him next door to his house. (laughs) Essentially, they caught him at home, which doesn't say, doesn't mean that he was always at home, but it means that that's where he comes back when he needs to be safe. Uh, Like every mafia boss, you are no one outside of your few. You are home. When you're home, you're someone. Outside of home, you're no one. And that's, I think, something that Messina De Naro confirms quite
0: clearly. Or also that sometimes the best place to hide is in plain sight because, you know, somebody in an environment that they don't belong stands out. Um, It strikes me he had the same, like, I don't know whether Whitey Bulger was 30 years on the run, but he was certainly a long time on the run. Whitey Bulger being wanted in Boston, the head of the Winter Hill gang, the Irish mafia boss essentially from Boston who had... Uh, worked with corrupt cops and disappeared just as, as the authorities were about to uh, arrest him. And he was certainly 18, 20 years on the run, but sure, he was seen all over the world. There were sightings of him everywhere. And ultimately, he was found in the US with a partner. Um, and there had been no plastic surgery or anything like it. He had just grown old as normal. But um Denaro, I suppose it's part of the... Co- a confidence you have and you gain if you're trying to live undercover, um, you know, and maybe within your own environment. But it is hard to believe without that in his own neighbourhood, people wouldn't have recognised him as he's going out and about because he seemed to have been going for coffee and...
1: I think, uh, yeah... Yeah, yeah, he doesn't seem to be hiding, which I think is, uh, is the essence of his, uh, his person. So Messina Denaro was well known before he disappeared for enjoying life. He was a womanizer, um, and he was someone who enjoyed, um, luxury goods. Um, he was always well-dressed. He was the most well-dressed of mafia bosses, if that means anything. Um, so he enjoyed, you know, going out and being seen. So it's very difficult, I guess, for someone with that kind of characteristic uh, to go completely undetected. Um, so probably some personality traits there also played a role. But also, I think uh, because he probably didn't stay uh, in Castelvetrano or in Trapani or in Palermo, for the whole time, um, I think it became his mythology, the mythology around him became so much that even if people at the bar thought, "Oh, maybe that looks a little bit like Messina denaro," they probably told themselves, "Now, come on come, they can be seriously, the most wanted man is here sitting next to me." On the one hand. On the other hand, it might have been fear. It's like, okay, so if this is Matteo Messina Denaro, should I, should it be me to tell something to the police? What if he comes after me? So it's, it's something not to forget, obviously, that the reason why Messina Denaro was in Trapani and was protected was because he was the boss and a very, very violent one. So I don't think we can be too judgmental on people uh, around the area because on the one hand, it's very unbelievable that you, the person you have in front of you is really him. And on the other side, there are complications and the people in that area know it very well that it's better if you mind your own business. And this is the meaning of Oberta. It's not that everyone wanted to protect him or everyone had something to gain, sometimes it's just minding your own business is a rational choice, in a way.
0: And I suppose, Anna, the other thing is that, you know, he was probably the most known face back in the early 90s, but that is quite a long time ago. And the new generation are living in a completely different world, really. And maybe his name isn't so familiar to them or his face isn't so familiar to them, a certain generation, obviously, because of what he did and what he was involved in, that seminal moment of 1992 when Italy stood up against the Mafia. Um, And obviously, it's part of your work and your interests, so you would be somebody who'd be very familiar with who he is, etc. But, you know, it's that idea of living in plain sight that... People aren't thinking of of who he is, you know. And no doubt, as the weeks and months go on, we will start to, or the the authorities will start to unravel where he's been, who he's been in contact with, and, you know, if people have been protecting him. Is there a... He's, he's obviously gone in to serve these prison terms that he had already been convicted of in absentia. So his future is mapped out.
1: Yeah, his future is mapped out, uh, and and so will his past very soon. So he's already been uh, moved to uh, the 41bis, uh, which is the Italian prison regime for mafia bosses in the prison of L'Aquila in the centre of Italy, where there are many other like him, which is a pre- pretty much permanent isolation um, kind of um, regime with only one visit per month, and only national television and not regional one to avoid, um, messages sent to him. Um, but he's very sick. So he has a very advanced form of cancer and, uh, they have agreed to treat him, uh, directly in the prison. Uh, but it might be the case that he has to receive some external treatment. The mom, the more he gets closer to, Death because he, they are the, his doctors or the doctors who, has, who have seen his conditions are adamant that he has not that much to live, which by the way could have played a role into his arrest. So, so far we have found two of his uh, hideouts. There weren't much of eye doubts, to be honest. One was a house <laughs> that was um, bought by the man he pretended to be. He pretended to be Andrea Bonafede. The real Andrea Bonafede bought the house for him. Um, and uh, he, they found normality in that house. They found, you know, even condoms and uh, Viagra, which sounded interesting. So he clearly was seeing other people outside of his circle. And uh, they found books and they found you know evidence that he was moving around. then they found another hideout a bit more of a bunker like uh, very close to the previous one where eventually he could have probably planned to hide if things went south um, but it didn't see it doesn't seem like he's been at least in the past year when his condition of health have deteriorated and he decided clearly to move back uh, for good. It doesn't seem like he has been, um, you know, refraining from going out or anything like that. So he either um, assumed that no one would recognize him or he assu- and that's, you know, the sense of grandeur that these people have. Or he, he had taken into account that his time was up, which seemed reasonable if you think that he's at the end of his life eventually health-wise.
0: And that he wanted to come home. I wonder, somebody like Denaro, who is responsible for so many deaths and also there was, I think, a kidnap and torture of a 12-year-old oh yes. boy yes. because his yes. father had Jesus. given evidence. Um, that it was a very distressing story to even read about. Um, the child was held for a long period of time and tortured. And he was dissolved into acid. Gosh, I mean, yes. what sort of a human being? But somebody like that, and maybe we needed to tell that story a little bit to consider this, somebody like that, as they possibly face death themselves, you know, do they? how do they feel? Do they navel gaze at all about their life and what they have done? Or are they so sociopathic that they can approach death without any feelings?
1: I think it's a difficult question, obviously, because we are not those people, but um, he's a mafia boss uh, and mafia bosses have a way of um, the simulating of their, all that they have done to justify and neutralise in the most classic way of neutralisation techniques, all that they have done. Not that necessarily you can even, I can't even find think of a way to neutralise the fact that you have dissolved into acid a boy you were um, holding hostage for over two years for no reason whatsoever but to punish his father. Um, but mafia bosses are not psychopath in that sense, uh, or sociopath. Um, assuming um, you know that everyone is aware of the difference, but um, it, it's more about living extremely wrapped up in your world, and in your world things make sense because you have this sort of um, you have make a choice. You have made a choice a long time ago to. Essentially, stay on that side. I, I know it sounds very abstract, but I think mafias are at the very top of their manifestations, like this one, somewhere like a cult, where um, the cult leader, which definitely someone like Messina Denaro is, believes in a few things. One, order. Anything that upsets my order needs to go. I need order. Uh, An order also means that if someone turns against me, I have to punish him. Because that's order, restoring order. Restoring honor. And honor means um, a number of things are not allowed because they are dishonorable. Uh, then obviously in practice they have rules for themselves and a rule for others, because clearly that's uh, obviously the beauty of it. But there are a couple of tenets which justify everything they do. So, and definitely order, the old bosses of Cosa Nostra had this obsession with order. Um, and eventually they created more chaos than anyone else in the name of order. So I don't know what he's thinking now, but surely. So in a way you say they sort of
0: rationalize themselves in that they're almost at war in a, in a their life is is a war against society and the norms
1: that the rest of us live under. Probably yes. I mean, we'll see because Messina Denaro has refused to already given signs that he's not going to talk, which is very obvious in a way because it's Matteo Messina Denaro, and if he wanted to talk, he had thirty years to start. Um, but. Uh, this will only um and I'm sorry to say this, but this will only fuel more conspiracies. Matteo Messina Denaro is believed to be the last one knowing certain secrets. The secrets of Totorina, the secrets of Bernardo Provenzano, the bosses before him, the secrets of Berlusconi and the help of Berlusconi to the Mafia and Rina. And the secrets of uh, the collapse of the first Italian Republic with Berlusconi. And the helpers of the political helpers of um, the killings of Paolo Borsellino, those who created, who basically made it impossible to discover the truth. He's supposed to know all that. He's supposed to have the archive of Totorina, he's supposed supposed to have a red agenda that belonged to Paolo Borsellino that disappeared on the day of his murder, he's supposed to be the gatekeeper of all of this knowledge. And he's going to probably die without saying a word. So um, in a way, this will only preserve the conspiracy. And uh, Italy, in this sense, will never get past this. It.
0: It's the most extraordinary story. And Anna, thank you so much for imparting just a tiny amount of your vast knowledge that you have on all of this to us today and giving us a sense of the enormity of the arrest of Denaro, whatever lies behind it whatever has gone on in the background. Nonetheless, the enormity of his arrest and the significance of it for the people of Italy. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you for prompting me.
0: You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free Sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on,